Okay, saints, if you would, open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Just go to Daniel, turn the page, and there you are. So as we're looking at Hosea, keep in mind that Hosea is broken down into two sections. You have the first three chapters that deal with basically um, Hosea and his home. Um, you would call it where you have the adulterous wife, and then you have this merciful and faithful husband there within his home. And then once you get into chapters 4 all the way through chapters 14, then you're not dealing with his home, but you're dealing with his homeland. And you have not just an adulterous wife, but the adulterous wife of Jehovah, the adulterous Israel, and then, of course, the faithfulness and the mercy of the Lord. So you're seeing these two things go side by side, hand in hand, as the contrast comes and what we're going to do tonight is we're going to try to get through the first five chapters. Um, we're going to be looking at the, the first three deal with Hosea and his home. And then as we get into chapter four, we're going to look at the adultery of Israel. And then in chapter five, that whole area where Israel refuses to repent. And so those are the areas that we're going to be looking through now. Once we get into the next week, we'll start looking at um, you know, beyond that where they have this, you know, a willful transgression of the covenant, a willful refusal to return to the Lord, and this willful continuing act of idolatry. And then, of course, we're going to see the judgment and then the, the restoration. However, what I do want you to see is within these first couple of chapters, what we see is this. There's always the two sides of the scale, what we're going to be seeing is you're going to see this issue with the, the wife of Hosea or the wife of Israel, and those two are synonymous sometimes side by side. And then you're going to see here where that action deserves a judgment. However, we're going to see this incredible mercy and the salvation that comes from the Lord. Two verses, if you want to just kind of just jot them down, don't turn there, but just jot it down for your reference. When we're in the book of Jeremiah, I want to read two verses from Jeremiah chapter 3. I want to read verse 20 and I want to read verse 14. But in Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, it says this, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. And in verse 14, of chapter 3 of Jeremiah, he says, Return, O backsliding Israel, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you from one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So where he says, listen, you've dealt treacherously. You've you know had this spiritual adultery. And yet he says, I want you to return to me for I am married to you. That's basically the whole outcome of what we see with this book of Hosea. Let's simply just jump into it and we'll go from there. So it begins the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. 
For the land has committed harlotry by departing from the Lord. So we see here the word of the Lord now comes to Hosea. When it simply says the word of the Lord comes to Hosea, we understand he's a prophet. God speaks to Hosea. Hosea then speaks then for the Lord. However, what's interesting is as the word of the Lord comes to Hosea, what we see in chapter 2 or or verse 2 of chapter 1, the Lord began to speak by Hosea and the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife. The very first words that he has to Hosea is not a word for someone else. He has a word for Hosea. And I think sometimes that's what we need to recognize. Before God gives us a word for someone else, let the word deal with us first. It's one of those things where we have a tendency of wanting to deal with the planks in other people's eyes or the, the specks in other people's eyes. But it says, first deal with the plank that's in your own. So this word of the Lord comes to Hosea. Now, that term Hosea, let me share with you a passage in the book of Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 13, I want to read to you only one verse, verse 8. Now, you know this is where um, you have these 12 um, people go into the promised land. And as these 12 spies are there, in Numbers 13, verse 8, it says, From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. Now, Hoshea, we know, will become Joshua, the son of Nun. And I just wanted you to see that Hoshea, Hosea, those two are synonymous. And so it simply is this, um, you see that same name that was given to Joshua. And of course, Jesus, he is Joshua in the Greek. And so you see here, this word of the Lord comes to Hosea. The term, it means deliverer. Um, That's what his name literally means. So this word of the Lord comes to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. You have these four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah being good kings, Ahaz being not so good, and those are the kings of Judah. Now what's interesting, as you take a look at these kings as they reign through Judah, you're going to see that here, this book of Hosea spans from 755 B.C. to 710 B.C. So just about 40, 45 years is the length of Hosea's ministry. That's a long time. Now, of course, there's only 14 chapters, and it's condensed. These 45 years are condensed into the times that he speaks. But here he says, God speaks to Hosea through the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And then he says, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, when he talks about Jeroboam, this would be Jeroboam the second because he's the son of Joash. Now, if you're familiar with how the kings lay out, you have four kings now of Judah and only one mentioned there as the king of Israel. So you have four kings mentioned to the southern tribe, one king mentioned to the northern tribe. The interesting thing is, as Jeroboam is the seventh to the last king of Israel, he, there's other kings that are beyond him as you go through these 45 years. However, Hosea doesn't mention the other kings. It's almost as if he really says the southern kings are the ones that you need to look to. The southern kings are the ones that eventually 
are going to be the rulers of Israel. You will go down to the southern kingdom. And of course, we'll look at that when we get into chapter 4. But as he does so, he mentions these four northern, the, the four southern kings. He mentions the one northern king, um, Jeroboam II, who was the seventh to the last king of Israel before they're taken into captivity to Assyria. Now verse 2, when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. The question that comes up when it says, go take yourself a wife of harlotry is this, does he marry someone who is already into harlotry? Or does he marry someone who is pure and then eventually moves into harlotry? That's the question that you, you know, that, that comes up. Well, I think the way to answer that the clearest is this: that as here Gomer is going to be representative of Israel, what was Israel when God calls her? What was Israel when God, you know, brought her to himself? Well, that answer is found in Exodus chapter 32. And in Exodus chapter 32, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 8. And it simply opens up this. Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people broke off the golden earrings which are in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with engraving tool and made a molded calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt had corrupted themselves they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them and have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So we see here that was Israel pure and then entered into harlotry or was Israel's heart always bent towards harlotry? Now, initially God brought Israel out Israel then immediately makes this calf and says, this calf now is your God. And rather than letting God be God and worshiping God. So here, that's the, the question it is. When he says, go take for your wife a harlotry and children of harlotry. Was his wife already um, in that bent? Or, you know, through the marriage, does she now shift? So, my thought is, I would just look to Israel. And however you determine that passage in um, Exodus 32, whether their heart was always on that bent or whether it was just something that, hey, when God delayed and there was this time, too much time on my hands, and I then led to what was the inclination of my heart. 
I just want you to realize that what happens is this. What we're going to see in Hosea, there's always this bent to go away from God and away from God and away from God and go into idolatry, to go into harlotry. And what God does is this. He says, listen, I'm going to judge what I need to judge, but I'm going to judge in order to bring you back to me. I want you to be saved. I want you to come back to me. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And that's the only reason why I'm going to bring punishment to you. So here when he says, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. What does it mean the land has committed great harlotry? Well, if you turn to chapter 4 of Hosea, the first three verses declare this. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land by swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery They break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn. And everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and even the fish of the sea will be taken away. So the actions of the people literally defile the land. And this is what he says, the land has committed harlotry. The people are committing this spiritual adultery, and it just spreads off to the land. So the very land itself where God says, in this land, I'm going to have my name placed, they are now, you know, just allowing their hearts, and so the land in that sense to depart from the Lord. And that's why he says here, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed a great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So in verse 3, he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass In that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel, and she conceived again and bore a daughter, then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away, and yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Loruamah, she conceived and bore a son, and God said, Call his name Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So at this point, he now comes to Gomer. He went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium. The name Gomer simply means completion. Now, the interesting thing is it's a completion on whether either it's completion because now it's man-made perfect or it utterly failed and so it's complete. So it's complete on both sides. So the term means completion, whether it's completion to perfection or completion to utter ruin, that remains to be seen. But here's Gomer. 
And it's interesting that all the actions of Gomer is bringing her to the completion of utter failure, but what God is trying to do is turn her to the completion of perfection. And so you see here her battle to bring herself down, God's battle to bring her up. And so the Lord, um, she comes and she bore him a son. Now this is an important term. I want you to see here where she, in verse 3, she conceived and bore him a son. It's in a sense that this is a child that belongs to him. And then in verse 6, remember, she conceived and bore a daughter. Now, it does not say that she bore him a daughter. It just says she bore a daughter. In verse 8, it says, now when she weaned Loruama, she conceived and bore a son. Once again, it does not say that she bore him a son, just she bore a son. So what we're sensing here is this, that the first child, Jezreel, he is of Hosea. And after that, she begins to have affairs. She begins to go out with other men. And then she conceives and, you know, she has a daughter um, that is not Hosea's. And then she has a son that is not Hosea's. So we're going to see here, and as we go a little bit further, once you get to chapter 2, it says in the first verse, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sister, mercy is shown. It's almost as if we're seeing here that these last two children that aren't his, those are going to be the representative of what he's dealing with the nation. Because when you have this name Jezreel, his firstborn, it simply means that God will sow. In other words, that what God is going to prep, what he needs to prep. And so Jezreel is going to be the preparation that God is sowing. And he says, I will avenge on Jezreel the house of Jehu. If you're familiar with Jehu, remember back in, you know, matter of fact, why don't you turn there? Let's, let's look at Jehu for just a second, because this is what he's dealing with, where it says, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. In 2 Kings chapter 9, let me just begin to develop who this Jehu is. Let's look at the first 10 verses. It begins this in 2 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Go get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go and make him rise up from among his associates and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu said, for which of us? And he said, for you, commander. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, which is a northern tribe. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, <coughs> that I may avenge the blood of my servants, 
the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. He says, Jehu, you are going to be the one that I'm going to use to take vengeance on Ahab and on his house. So, in verse 8, For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. So we see here that, as he says, I'm going to deal with all of it. Verse 10 now of 2 Kings 9 says, And the dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and he fled. So now he says, all right, you're going to deal with the house of Ahab. You're going to deal with Jezebel. And of course, as he comes, he starts going now to where Jezebel is. And in 2 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, as Jehu now comes to Jezreel, Jezebel hears of it, and she put paint on her eyes, adorned her head, looked through the window. Then as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And she looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side, who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank, and he said, Go now, see to this accursed woman, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And so, therefore, they came back and they told him, he said, well, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground, at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. So, here we see the death of Jezebel. And as you go to chapter 10, in the first eight verses, it says, now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, and to the elders and those who reared Ahab's son, saying, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses and fortified cities and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's son, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid. So he wrote letters to everyone who had Ahab's sons. And he says, get ready, get your best guys, because we're about to go to war. Well, verse 4, they were afraid. And they said, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? And he who was in charge of the house, and he was in charge of the city and elders also, and those who reared the sons sent to Jehu and saying, We are your servants. We will do all that you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. So he says, We won't make any of them king. You can be the king. So he writes a second letter and says, If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men of your master's son and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's son, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them 
to him at Jezreel. Then a messenger came and told him and saying, they have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. So you see here the blood that was at Jezreel. And so what God is saying here in verse 4 of Hosea 1, the Lord said, call his name Jezreel, because God is going to sow. For I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. In other words, Jehu was very bloody in his dealings. Now understand, we're going to see if, as you go through 2 Kings that Jehu did as God commanded, but he didn't do it with the heart that God wanted him to do it. And so he's going to bring to the kingdom of the house of Israel. He's going to bring an end now to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And keep in mind that is going to be true because Israel will have less than 40 years before they're taken captive into Assyria. Now as we go on, it says in verse 5, it should come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So he's going to, the break the bow means the strength of war. They will not be able to fight against the king of Assyria. They're in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived now and then bore a daughter. Now this daughter, keep in mind, it didn't say she bore him a daughter. She just bore a daughter. And he called her name Lo-Ruamah. Now, lo in the, the Hebrew means no, and then ruama means mercy. So her name means no mercy. So call her name lo ruama, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. So call her name no mercy, because I am not going to have mercy on Israel anymore. But I will utterly take them away, yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. So the northern tribe Israel... Those 10 tribes says, no mercy for you. You've had chances to repent, chances to repent. You've had no good kings. Whereas we were looking here, the four kings that were mentioned there in verse 1, you had Uzziah, you had Jotham, you had Hezekiah, good kings. No good kings were from the northern tribes. So he says, listen, you will have no mercy. However, verse 7, I will have mercy in the house of Judah will save them by the Lord their God. So he says, I'm going to save them. Now, I'm not going to save them through the bow. I'm not going to save them through sword or battle or horses or horsemen. I myself am going to save them. And of course, you know that as Assyria would go down to Israel, one angel wipe out 185,000, they'd be fleeing. So we see that God himself says, I'm going to be the one to protect Judah in time, we're going to see here that as Judah becomes more and more corrupt doing the things that the northern tribes Israel did, God's going to say, I'm going to deal with you as well, which is where Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are saying, listen, here, the southern tribe of Judah, you're going to be taken to Babylon. So now we're looking here, just dealing with the northern tribe. And in verse 8, when she weaned Loruama, her daughter, she conceived and bore a son. And God said, call his name Lo-Ami. And so Lo means not my people or no people. You are not my people. So he says, "For call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. So in a sense, we see this daughter and this son, this, the second and the third born of Gomer, 
they are not Hosea's, and so you have one, you, are, um, you will have no mercy, and then all of a sudden you are not my people, which is, of course, that name of the, the, the second son. So, although all that is happening and deserves judgment, what God does is this. In verse 10, you see this wonderful shift of, again, his mercy and his grace. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. So although Israel is acting as a harlot, going after these other idols, God says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, There it shall be said, you are the sons of the living God. So although at one point Loami was there, which says, you're not my people. Now he says, but you are going to in turn be the sons of the living God. Yet the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be together and appoint for themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So there is going to be this restoration of Israel as both Israel and Judah now are joined together. So you see where although you should be judged, it's going to come to pass and I'm going to bring you back. Although you should not be my people for what you've done, you are going to be the sons of the living God and I'm going to knit you to Judah and there's going to be this great celebration there in Jezreel, which at one point was just a place of bloodshed for Israel and its rulers. But now God says, I'm going to use this in a place that you're going to worship me. So in chapter 2, he says, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. So at this point, he says, Say to your brother, and in that sense, I would reference verse 9, Loami, where he says, You are not my people. And say to your sister, mercy is shown. I would reference verse 6, where he calls, you know, his, that daughter, Lo Ruama, where it says, you know, there is no mercy. So you see now a change in chapter 2. Say to your brethren, my people, say to your sisters, mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges So he talks about these two children that were not his, Lo-Ru'ama and, of course, Lo-Ami. As he talks to those, he says, I want you to bring charges against your mother, bring charges. Now, who is he saying bring charges? He could be saying, Jezreel, the firstborn, you bring charges because you know that your siblings are not mine. He could be asking the two children who were born... um, from other people because you bring charges against your mother. The key is that God is saying, I'm going to bring charges against your mother. Don't bring charges against your mother, bring charges for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breast, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. 
For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave, who give me bread and my water, my wool and linen, my oil and my drink. So here, She's going after these other men and saying, these men are who are providing for me. It's these men who are giving me my food and my water and my wool and my oil and my drink. These men are providing for her. Well, at this point, Hosea is saying, listen, I'm going to bring charges and she will no longer be my wife. In other words, because of adultery, I can separate myself from her. It's interesting, and I want you to look at verse 5 for just a moment, because it does declare this at the end of verse 5. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. I want you to shift to verse 8 here of chapter 2, and look at what verse 8 declares. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. What Hosea did is when he found out which men were Gomer's lovers, he would literally go to them, give them food, give them the oil, give them the wool, give them everything that she would need and say, would you supply this to Gomer? Would you give this to Gomer? Would you give this to Gomer? And so while she was going after other men, Hosea would go to these men and give them what Gomer needed. Now, Gomer here in verse 5 said, she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me. And yet Hosea said, she did not know that I was the one who was giving this to her. And so often, wasn't that like Israel, as they were going into adultery, they were looking to these idols, saying, these idols are doing this, these idols. And God says, no, I'm the one who's doing it. These idols are nothing. And so we see here that as she's going after her lovers, now um, in verse 6, it makes this statement, therefore behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. And she will chase her lovers but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them but not find them. And then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her the grain and the new wine, the oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore, I will return and take her away. My grain in its time and my new wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and my linen and given to cover her nakedness. So we see here, Yet what God declares as far as the judgment to Israel is this. Back to verse 6, he says, Behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. What God says is this, I'm going to make it difficult for you to pursue the lovers that you want. I'm going to put obstacles in your path and prevent you from going in that direction. It's interesting that there's a statement that they talk about how people are just running headlong to hell. And what God is saying is this, where they said, people, he said, listen, if you are going to go to hell, you are going to go over my dead body. 
you're going to have to literally walk over Jesus Christ and the cross and his work and be aware of that on your way to hell. And he says, listen, I'm trying to do everything I can to prevent you from going. And so we see here one of the first things that he's doing is that he's trying to make it so that she realizes you are the source of everything that I have. Not my lovers, it's been you. And so he's going to put this hedge there and he's going to wall her in so that all so she can't pursue her lovers anymore. And so in verse 6, once again, he says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her path. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. So as hard as she is pursuing after her lovers, God is going to put obstacles in her way so she cannot find them, she cannot pursue them. And after she, you know, exhausts herself in pursuing these lovers, then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. So once he puts in this wall and hedge and she can't go to those lovers to who he was giving all the resources, her resources were now ended. And so she's thinking, well, let me go back and go to my husband because at least it's better than it, than it was better for me than now. And of course, verse 8, she did not know that I gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. So although I was the one who was supplying all this, they were turning it around and using it to worship Baal and not using it to glorify me. So when we get to verse 9, there's this subtle change that's actually going on in the text. And what the text is this, it's moving from that term from Hosea and the judgment to Gomer to God and the judgment with Israel. Let me read to you the last part of verse 13 here of chapter 2 so you can kind of see what, what I'm declaring. At the end of verse 13, it says this, She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. So what we're referring to now is as we get to verses 9 and on, we're going to see this subtle shift, this change. It's not Gomer or Hosea speaking to Gomer. Now it's God speaking to Israel. So what God says to Israel, his unfaithful wife in verse 9 is this, Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time. God says, I'm taking my grain away. It's mine. And my new wine in its season, I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. And now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall deliver her from my hand. And I will also cause all her mirth to cease in her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbath and her appointed feast. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. As she's receiving all these things that Hosea had given to her lovers, she's saying, oh, my lovers are so pleased. These are my wages. This is what I've earned. And yet she has been unfaithful and Hosea is still supplying her. So in her mind, she thinks that she's earned these things from her lovers. But in reality, it's been that God has given to um, them. It has never been her lovers. So 
after she said, these are my wages in verse 12 that my lovers have given me, God says, so I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and she went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. So through all this, you would expect the next statement to say, wow, I'm going to really judge you for this. But look at what happens. Remember how we talked about there's this whole thing that leads up to what should be judgment, but then you see the mercies of God and God wanting salvation. So after she now decks herself with her earrings, after she goes after her lovers, after she forgets God, in verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and spring, speak comfort to her. And I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor is a door of hope, and she shall sing there. God says, rather than judging, I'm going to bless. I'm going to lure you in with kindness. I'm going to lure you in with mercy. I'm going to lure you in with love. And although you've been pursuing these other lovers, you're going to find them empty. And I'm going to bring you to me. And I'm going to take you to a place. And in a sense, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come and I'm going to begin this courtship with you again. I'm going to be pouring out my love and pouring out my goodness. Well, it says here in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I'll give her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor is a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth as when she came up from the land of Egypt. In the same way as when they were released from bondage of Egypt, they were free. So she's going to be now freed from the bondage of these idols and the harlotry. And you know this, as soon as you forsake sin, what happens? That weight gets lifted from you and there's this celebration. So when you think of you know, the pilgrim's progress and the weight that he had when he finally was able to let that weight go, to let that sin go there at the cross, he was now freed and there was a celebration. In the same way as they celebrated leaving Egypt, there's now this celebration as she's able to leave her lovers, leave idolatry, idolatry leave her sin. And verse 16, And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband. You understand how intimate this is? He says, and no longer call me my master, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. And in that day, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the air and with creeping things of the ground, the bow and the sword of battle I will shatter from the earth and I will make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Verse 19 says, yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer with grain and new wine and with new oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. 
Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. How incredible is this where you see here that at the end of verse 13, she's still pursuing her lovers, although she didn't realize that God was the one who provided everything. He said, I'm going to hedge you in. I'm going to put a wall around you. I'm going to stop that providing them. So you're going to come to this point of being needy and then realize it was me all along that has been supplying you. And what God says is, rather than judging you, I'm going to woo you. I'm going to allure you. I'm going to have this incredible courtship drawing you back to me. And then you're going to call me my husband. You're going to say, you are my husband. You've always been my husband. You're going to come back to me in that place of intimacy and authority. And then he says in verse 19, I'm going to betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. God says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to have that incredible intimacy with you. And then in verse 23, once again, I want you to notice how he deals with those two children that were born outside of wedlock. They were born with other lovers. So in verse 23, he said, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and will have mercy on her who had not attained mercy. Remember verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And God said to him, Call her name Loruama, which means no mercy. Well, now he says, I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. In other words, the first child born not of Hosea, and then the next son, Loami, he says, and then I will say to those who are, were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So this, now he takes those two children who were born out of wedlock that aren't his and says, you're going to be mine anyways. How incredible is that, that he takes these two children that once initially was, there is no mercy and you are not my people, to now he says, I will have mercy on her who would not obtain mercy, and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And both of those are going to respond and say, you are my God. This is all he's wanted. The whole thing that he's doing is getting them to come back to him, back to his heart, back to who he is. And then in chapter 3, we see that the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover. So God says to Hosea in chapter 3, I want you to go and love her again. So go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So he says, I want you to go and love this woman who's been loved by other people and just like the love of God for the children of Israel because Israel has loved other gods. And so, verse 2, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and for one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days and you shall not play the harlot nor shall you have a man, so too I will be towards you. 
For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. And afterwards the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So here in chapter 3, we see that he says, I want you to go and love her again. Now, it's interesting in verse 2 where he says, I went and bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. What's happening is this. There's that inference that Gomer is now selling herself into slavery. She has nothing. And she's saying, the only thing that I can do to my life is to sell myself as a slave that I will give myself to whoever purchases me. And so she's putting herself there upon the slave block to whoever purchases her. Well, lo and behold, looks who buys Gomer. Now, her price, now uh, the, the price of a slave is 30 shekels of silver, and he buys her for 15 and one and a half homers of barley. Most scholars say that between the, the, the shekels of silver and the homer, that's pretty much the price of what it would be. But here, he purchases her. And when he purchases her, he says in verse 3, You shall stay with me many days and shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be towards you. What he's saying is this, you're going to come as I've purchased you. Not only did I marry you and then you play this harlot, but now I've bought you. I've purchased you. I have redeemed you. You're now mine, not because I married you, but because I bought you. And now that I am your master, not just your husband, I own you because you sold yourself as a slave. He said this, now you're not going to play the harlot. But what's amazing is this. He said, you are going to be my wife, though. And he says this, look at verse 3. He said to her, you shall stay with me many days and you shall not play the harlot. You shall not have a man. So too I will be towards you. You understand? He's saying, you're going to be my wife again. You're going to have the place of my wife and I'm going to love you as my wife. But know this, you, I bought you. You don't have the freedom now to go. You are not my wife in that sense. I will treat you as my wife, and you will be as my wife. But not only are you my wife, but you are now my slave. I have purchased you. I have bought you. Now I command you to be with me. But know this. My response to you is not going to be one of cruelty. My response is still going to be to you what? As a loving husband. This is incredible. When you think of what was happening here, you know, how many people who have been jilted would say, you know, if I had a chance to buy you, if I had a chance to purchase you as a slave, I would give you the worst jobs ever. And yet he doesn't. He says, you're going to be my wife. You're not going to have a man. But so too, I'll be towards you. I'm going to be faithful towards you. And so we see here that he talks about in verse 4, the children of Israel, they're going to have a time that they will be scattered they won't have a king. They won't have a prince. They're not going to have a sacrifice or a sacred pillar. There's no ephod or teraphim. But afterwards, look at verse 5. He says, The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Remember how we talked about there'd be a joining of the northern and the southern tribes? 
And here we see that what happens is the northern tribes actually come and become a part of the southern tribes. Not just a, a, a joining of the two together, but like here, remember when Hosea says to Gomer, I'm purchasing you, you're now mine, but I'm going to bless you. So when God now goes and redeems Israel, he brings them to the southern tribe, to David, and so David is going to be their king. So still Judah is the primary kingdom that God is going to establish. He's going to establish the reign through David, and Israel is going to come back to that. So the ten tribes that have separated themselves from Israel and now we're taken into captivity. When they come back, they're going to be a part of Judah once again. And so Judah will be known as all Israel, but it's going to be through David. And that's why in verse 5, afterwards the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So they're going to come back and be in the right relationship. And now in chapter 4, we're going to see here that they reject God. They reject the very knowledge of God and who the Lord is. So he makes this statement in verse 4, and I want you to see how this establishes everything that's going to be in this chapter. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. So you hear the word. You have to hear what I'm saying, be aware of what I'm saying, know what I'm saying. I'm going to bring a charge against the inhabitants of the land. So when he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, what is he referring to? He's referring to the northern tribe. Hear you northern tribe, I the Lord am bringing a charge against the inhabitants. What is this charge? He says there's no mercy. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint. In other words, you know, remember how we looked to that passage in, in Exodus chapter 32 where they, you know, they ate, drank, and they rose up and play. Um, when they rose up and play, they didn't go bowling. They didn't play baseball. The playing isn't a game. The, the playing means they went into licentiousness. They went into abominations. That's the rose up and play. They, they went into immorality. And so he says, that when they broke all restraint, with bloodshed upon bloodshed, therefore the land will mourn. Everyone who dwells there will waste away. With the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or rebuke one another. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge... I also will reject you from being a priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. And I will change their glory into shame, and they shall eat up the sin of my people and set their heart on iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests, so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Harlotry, 
wine and new wine will enslave the heart. So as he now comes, he says, listen, I'm going to deal with you because of all the things that we talked about in the first three verses. No truth, no mercy, no knowledge, no knowledge of God. They're swearing, they're lying, they're killing, they're stealing, they're committed adultery, no restraint. So what happens, he says, you're like the people that you kind of just contend with the priest. The priest says one thing, you don't listen. You know, you're going to stumble, and because you stumble, you're going to cause everyone else to stumble with you. And in verse 6, he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And I find it interesting that what happens is this. That there's people that say, you know, I, I know of God. I know God. I know the Bible. The fact is you don't really know the Bible. You, know, you might know a verse. You might know what someone told you about the Bible, but you don't know the Bible. And what happens is when you gravitate to a verse and you begin to make that verse your doctrine, when it's not the doctrine of the scripture as a whole, you find yourself that you're going in a path that is going to be destructive. And so it's always coming back to the Lord, coming back to his grace, coming back to who he is, coming back to loving God and loving people. This is the heart. But he says, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. He goes and says, listen, I'm going to reject you from being a priest because you're not really looking to understand the fullness of the word. I'm going to reject you from serving me. And that's what he's saying. Now, how many times do people say, well, I'm going to learn this, I'm going to learn this, and I'm going to do this for God. Remember those people that said, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name and do that in your name? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. See, you can do things and do things and do things, but if you don't know the whole of the scripture, if you don't understand fully what that is, he says, listen, you are doing this because you're rejecting knowledge. You're, you're grabbing only certain parts of the scripture and you're making that your doctrine. He says, I'm going to reject you. You can't minister to me when you're only gravitating to certain things. And that's why it's the whole of the scripture is so key. Here a little, there a little, precept upon precept line upon line. And so we see here that knowledge of the word, he says, but you're rejecting the knowledge. You only want to hear what you want to hear. And you don't want to hear what you don't want to hear. You're, you're saying, I, amen to the things that I do like, but you're walking away and just passing away those things that you don't like. And he says, if you do that, I'm just rejecting you. And because you've forgotten the law of your God, because you've forgotten the, the two things that what hinge all the law, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You're forgetting these two things. And so because of that, he says, I'm going to forget you as my children. And then in verse 7, and this is where it's so key. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. The more that they were blessed, the more they realized, I don't need God for this, and I don't need God for this, and I don't need God for that. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. And then he says, well, I'm going to change their glory into shame. And he'll go on to say in the end of verse 10, because they have ceased obeying the Lord, harlotry, wine, new wine enslaves the heart. All these things capture the heart, but they take the heart away from God. So, in verse 12, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols. 
and their staff informs them. The spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. So they're asking from these wooden idols. Now, you know, the idols, they have eyes and they don't see, ears they have and they don't hear, noses they don't smell, arms and they can't do. You know, you, you have to put the idol in its place, hold it down so it doesn't fall down. That's what you do. But they're asking counsel for wooden idols. And their staff informs them the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. And they play the harlot against their God. And they offer sacrifices on the mountaintops. And they burn incense on the hills under the oaks and poplars and taverns because their shade is good. They're in that place and saying, this is good. It's, it's comfortable here. I'm not under the hot of the sun. Therefore, because you're looking to harlotry, therefore your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit harlotry. He's talking to Israel, to their men, and saying, because you're doing this spiritual harlotry, your wives and your daughters will do that as well. He says in verse 14, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. He says, you know, guys, you're trying to judge your daughters and you're trying to judge here your wives. But you go to these ritual harlots and are thinking this is a form of worship. And it's not. It's adultery. So you're doing it on the spiritual sense. And so what you're doing, you're doing what's wrong, but you consider it all spiritual. And then when someone does it and it doesn't seem all spiritual like you do, what, then you judge it? And I think it's important to realize that how many times do we do things wrong, but yet we put this spiritual tagline on it. And yet it's still not according to God's word. No matter how you slice it and dice it, no matter how you want it to be spiritual, it's still against his word. And so when you want to judge this person or judge that group and you say, well, you know, here I am judging us, don't judge. I'm the judge. And if you are going to judge anything, you only judge those who are inside, but you judge them to the point of restoration. And yet we have this tendency, we judge and judge, and this is what they're doing. They're doing wrong. They're going to these ritual harlots, and yet they're now condemning their daughters and their wives as they're seeking others as well. And God says, I'm not going to punish your daughters nor your brides, because you yourselves go apart with harlots and you offer sacrifices with the ritual harlot. So in verse 15, though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, as the Lord lives. So don't come up to Gilgal, where Elijah was taken and he ascended. Don't go up to Beth-Avon, and Beth-Avon means the house of iniquity or the house of sin. Don't go there, nor swear an oath saying, as the Lord lives. Don't go to these places where you don't have a connection with God. He says this, verse 16, For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in an open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Now when you say Ephraim, it's the same as saying Israel. They're interchangeable. Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Their drink is rebellion, they commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wine has wrapped her up in its wings. 
or the wind has wrapped her up in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So he now points out their sins. Now remember, he said, I'm bringing charges and these are the charges that I've brought. Now as he brings the charges, what happens in chapter 5 is that Israel refuses to repent. Notice again, he says, hear this, O priest. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment, because you've been a snare to Mizpah, and have spread, and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry, Israel is defiled. Now notice verse 4. says, they do not direct their deeds towards turning to their God. See, there is no true repentance. There's not a desire to come back to God. They, verse 4, do not direct their deeds towards turning to their God. For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. So when you don't forsake sin, you can't come near to God. When you don't forsake the sin, you continue to be a part of that sin. And how many people say, well, I'm going to draw near to God, but I haven't quite forsaken this sin. He says, here you are, you're not directing your deeds towards turning to God. You're still staying in your sin for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. And they do not know the Lord. And then it says this, verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity, and Judah also stumbles with them. Understand, a little leaven is now leavening the whole lump. As Judah is, you know, hanging out with Israel, Judah now is stumbling with the same thing that Israel and Ephraim has stumbled with. In verse 6, with their flocks and herds, they shall go and seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children, for a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. So in other words, they're they're not pure in who they are. They're not pure in their thinking. They're not pure in their worship. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah. The trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Beth-Avon, look behind you, O Benjamin, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel. I will make known what is sure. So now at this point, he says he's, he's giving a warning. He's blowing this warning. And he tells Benjamin, look up there. Look behind you. See what's happening here because I'm judging them. And of course, he's going to later on say, listen, Judah, if you do what your older sister has done, I'm going to judge you as well. So here he says, At the end of verse 8, look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is sure. Princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment. So now he's warning Judah, Judah, be careful. You are now shifting what is right. Now moving a landmark is this. When you buy a plot of land, you would say this. Here's a rock that's set up here, and it goes to that rock that's set up down there. 
But if I want more land, what I'm going to do is in the middle of the night, I'm going to go and I'm going to move that one rock and I'm going to shift it, you know, 50 feet that way. Now I have more land. Oh, the rock has always been there. No, no, you're moving the border. You're removing a landmark. You're taking something out of the way and you're not going by what is right. So when you know something is true, you're rejecting it as true. You're changing it. You're removing it. It says, now I'm going to pour my wrath on them like water. So when Judah begins to imitate Israel, Judah will be judged like Israel is being judged. Because in verse 11, he says, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. He thought about, here are the things of man. This is what I do. It's interesting how many times people reject the word of God and they reject God and they say, I can do this on my own. How many times do you think, have you heard people say, oh, I can do that. I don't need God. I don't need God. I don't need God. But what's interesting is this. Although they do not need God, what they'll do is this. They'll turn into self-help books. They'll turn on and, and listen to Dr. Phil. Can you help me out here? They'll learn in the tune in to say, who else can help me? They don't turn to God, but they turn to what? All the self-helps in the world. They realize I can't do it on my own, but they don't come back to God for the answer. They look to the world for the answer, to the, to the people who, who help the people in the world with their answers. And you know those answers are only temporary. And so, you know, you can say, well, let's look at me. Let's look at me. No, let's look. I know what I am. It's sin. I need to look to God. I don't have to look and see why I do what I do. I know that. God told me why I do. I do it because I'm a sinner. And so we move on to this. And I think it's so interesting how he makes that statement. And so once again, we see here in verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound. Oh, wait, no, back up to the end of verse 11. Because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, verse 12, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. In other words, I'm going to eat the cloth and I'm going to just destroy whatever else is there. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and to King Jerob Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. So he said, although you rejected me, you went to a serious, would you help me out? So you're looking to all these other things. You say, I don't need God, but yet what? You realize I still can't do it in my own. When people say, I don't need God, and yet they're looking at the self-help of the world, you're saying, what? I can't do it on my own. So when you realize you can't do it on your own, what do you do? Go back to God. And so he says, because you haven't got to me, like at the end of verse 11, I'm just going to tear them and go away. I'm going to take them away, and no one shall rescue. And I'm going to take you from the land. I'm going to take, send you into captivity. But here's what's amazing. Although they refuse to repent and God says, I'm going to deal with you in this radical way to send you into captivity. I'm going to punish you for one reason. So that you come back to me with your whole heart. That's it. 
You either come to me with your heart initially and have no punishment, or you begin to wander and I'll punish you, so you come back to me with your whole heart. Look at how he ends chapter 5 of Hosea in verse 15. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. See, God says, I'm going to send you into captivity, but I'll be right here. And when you're in captivity, when you're going through that pain, when you're going through that affliction, then you're going to seek my face. And I love what God says, and you're going to earnestly seek me. And the whole thing that he's doing this for is because eventually you know the whole heart of it. He says, I want you to, you know, be and to say, you are my God. Remember what he said back in chapter 2, verse 23 at the very end, where he says, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. That's his whole heart where he's going to bring them to the point of affliction so that they would come back to him and they would again, as he goes back to his place, they're sent away. They're going to acknowledge it would have been so much better for me to have been with what? My first husband, to be with God, to stay with God who saved me. But yet I wandered and then they're going to come back. They're going to seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. And so he says in chapter 6, and of course we won't go there, come and let us return to the Lord. It's all about coming back to him. And so we see this beautiful picture here of how he shows this unfaithful wife of Hosea dealing with Israel, the unfaithful wife of Jehovah. And so through this, it's a beautiful thing of what you know Hosea does. He purchased her back and says, I know I bought you back as a slave, but you are going to be my wife. And you can't leave like you would have as just being my wife, because you're my slave too. You're my slave, and I am commanding you, be my wife. And you watch. I'm just going to simply love you like I've always wanted to love you, but now you need to be here because I purchased you. And that's what God is going to do. He's going to bring Israel to the point of affliction so that they're once again going to realize, oh my goodness, did I ever blow it. And so here was, was Gomer, you know, who has absolutely nothing. And now she sells herself on the slave block. And, and Hosea says, I'm going to buy you. I've always provided for you wherever you went, but now you're mine. And this is here what Israel comes back to that place where they earnestly, earnestly seek the Lord. And he goes, this is what I've always wanted. I've always wanted you to be my wife. So just be here and love me. I'm going to put hedges and walls in your a command. You cannot go anywhere else. Just stay with me. And isn't that really what we always want anyways? Isn't that where we're truly at the greatest peace? When we're with our Lord um, and just, just walking in his ways. So Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for your heart, how good you are. You are good, and you, you speak so wonderfully to us. And every time, Lord, that they, Israel acted up and, and they deserved judgment, you told them that you're going to judge them only until they come back to you to receive mercy, to receive grace, to receive salvation. That they could once again realize that this is my husband, this is my God. And you will say, this is Israel, this is my bride. You've always wanted intimacy, that's what you've always wanted. And yet we drift, we, we, we leave that. We're so grateful for your spirit to bring us back 
to bring us back, to bring us back again to that place of intimacy with you. Oh, Father, knit us to you. Help us not to wander. Help us not to look to all these other things for help. Only you, only your word. And not just aspects of it, but the whole of your word. Let us not be those who will perish because of lack of knowledge. But let us be those who look to your whole heart and see that in the volume of the book it is written of you, Jesus, to do your will. So draw us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.